but we're going to be in Psalm chapter 30. I have a question for you as well. Um, This psalm has a very famous verse in it, and it says, joy comes in the morning. Now, just a quick show of hands. How many of you consider yourselves to be morning people? Got some like this. No, strong no's. Most people, like some of you guys who are morning people, you're not like excited about being a morning person. You're more just like, yeah, like I'm kind of a morning person. Those of you who are not like me, you are like emphatically, no, I do not do mornings. And as a non-morning person myself, it's really hard when I get a 6 a.m. wake-up call. And a lot of times, my 6 a.m. wake-up call is from my littlest child, who's five. And he decides the way that he wants to wake me up is not like the sweet, good morning, daddy. Like, hey, great to see you. Or, hey, did you sleep okay? Or even just a, dad, I really just need, not even that. Here's what I get a lot of times. My back may be to the edge of my bed, and I get this. Good morning. That is not the way to start your day. It's rough, okay? And so when this passage says joy comes in the morning, the opposite of joy is my experience every morning, all right? Like, I don't associate morning with joy very often. I associate with I'm annoyed, I'm tired, I still want more sleep, and can I hit snooze five more times on my iPhone before I accidentally hit the off button, and then I sleep an extra half an hour, because I'm really hoping that happens. But joy coming in the morning is part of this passage, and I think a lot of times it is really hard for us to think of the morning when sometimes things are really difficult, and you just know what's coming in the day ahead. Sometimes sleep is the best part of your day. You're like, I just love sleep. Give me more. But the idea that it's going to be exciting when joy comes in the morning is tough to come by. Today, I want to finish up our summer, and as we jump into kind of the school year, and it's funny because life just runs on school year calendars, and like, no matter how old you get, like, your life just kind of runs on an August to August cycle, because the world kind of revolves around the school year, Um, and and so I know people start at all different times nowadays, some people start way too early in the summer, some people start in September, good for them, I know some people who started today, I know some people who started last week, I know some people who start next week, I know some people who start two weeks from now, God bless all of you, here's where we're at, we're finishing up our summer series and we're just going to say how do you start the new school year start this new phase of your life with praise like start your day with praise that's the idea joy comes in the morning start start your day with praise how do you start this new year with praise we're going to talk about that tonight psalm chapter 30 i'm going to go a couple verses at a time there are 12 verses in this chapter we're going to cover all of them in the time we have together which is quite a feat in and of itself but we're going to do it here we go psalm chapter 30 Verses 1 through 3 first. David says, I will extol you or praise you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought my, up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. This is written by King David. King David is like one of the guys who lived one of the most interesting lives in all of scripture. He's lived a lot of life and had ups and had downs. He's had it all in between. He wrote this and it was given to the people for the use of dedicating the temple. Now, what's interesting is the temple comes after David's life. It comes after David has passed. So it's an interesting thought. There's a lot of different theories on this, but I think it's interesting that David writes this and people look back on it and go, this is a good thing to use to praise the Lord as we dedicate a building. 
that is known for the presence of God. That's what the temple is. It's where God meets with people one-on-one. And so this was used for that future time. And what David does is he recounts things in his life that God has done that are praiseworthy and shares his experiences so other people could praise God. And I think that's really a simple thing that you guys could get tonight is that is there something in your life that is good that God has done that you can praise God for and then can you turn it around and can you tell other people what God has done in your life? Not in a bragging way like, oh, look at what God did for me and he has done anything for you because I'm really awesome. No, it's not like that. It's more like, wow, God did this for me, how blessed I am. And, and guess what? He can do similar things. Maybe not the exact same thing for you, but he can be what you need as well in sharing that with other people. In this first, three, this first opening part, David gives us three reasons to praise. Okay? I'm just going to go through these really quickly for you. Verse 1 and verse 1, he says, I was delivered from attacks or from my opposition. He says this, you have drawn me up and not let my foes rejoice over me. Now, some of you guys have to realize that you face opposition that comes in the form of spiritual opposition, like people, uh, or I mean, sorry, spiritual things that the enemy puts into your mind. It could be negative thoughts. It could be sin. It could be temptation. You've got that going on. You also may have actual people who oppose you. You may have people who bully, who pick, who, who make fun of you, who do all these things, and they are opposing you from having joy, okay? And David says, I was delivered from those things. That's a reason to praise God. Here's a second reason that David praises God. God answered his prayers when he was desperate. He had times in his life that were very dark, very lonely, and what he did in those lonely, dark times is he cried out to God for help, and God answered Again, think through the times in your life when you've actually prayed for something specific, not just an open-ended, like, oh, God, could you do something good for me today? But you prayed specific prayers, and God answered them. Use that as a memory that you can then share with others as a testimony of what God has done in your life. Rescued from impending doom. David was often on the edge of death, but there are many times when David was sleeping and hiding out in caves, knowing that people were chasing after him to kill him, whether it was King Saul, whether later on in his life it was his own son, you know, whoever was chasing after his life. But there were many times that King David was able to rest his head in sleep. You know, you're most vulnerable when you go to sleep, right? You can't defend yourself if you're out, if you're just dead asleep. I'm a very heavy sleeper, so much so like when I was in college, some numbskull pulled the fire alarm at like three in the morning and the entire like seven story apartment like complex that I lived in in college, the, the flashing lights and the blaring like is going off and guess what I did? I slept through it. No joke. My roommate shook me and said, hey, we should probably go and I looked at him and said, it's probably just a drill. We'll be fine. You don't know that until it's, you find out. It, it, it was a drill. It, well, it was actually some guy who pulled it illegally, but it, neither there, here nor there. Okay, so anyway, but sometimes God has rescued David from impending doom. Some of you may realize that, and we're going to hold on to that idea of being rescued and share that in a second as we get to the end tonight, but hold on to that thought. Let's continue on. So there are three reasons that David says to praise. We just covered those. Now look what he says as he continues to give instructions to people like us on how to sing praise to the Lord. Verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Give thanks to his holy name. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. 
So when I read this, and you're given instructions in Scripture by God, you should start asking questions what you see in the passage. That, that's good Bible study habits. So, so one of the questions that I, I just pick up on from verse 5 is, it says, God's anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. So that, I have to ask the question, what angers God the most? Yeah, you think about that. Like, what angers God? It's simple. It's sin, right? I mean, sin angers God. God hates sin with a passion because it attacks against who God is. It attacks against God's glory. So what angers God is sin. Well, then you start to recognize, like, man, I have sin in my life. So therefore, if I have sin in my life, God could be angry with me, the sinner. And that is true. If you are not in Christ, if your sin has not been forgiven, then God is angry, not just with your sin, but also with you. You are under the wrath of God, as John would say in his gospel. So that angers God a lot. But the good news of this is that he says he may be angry for a moment. That doesn't have to last forever. There is a way that you can gain his favor for a lifetime. How do you do that? God's angry with you because you're in sin, how do you gain his favor for a lifetime? That sounds like a really good trade. Like, I'd rather you be angry with me for a moment and trade in favor for a lifetime. And the answer to that is just as simple as we ask the other question is this answer is simple. It's Jesus. It's being in Christ. Being saved by Christ means that, therefore, God's anger against me is no longer there. It was a, a momentary thing in my life. No longer, no matter how long it, it took until I came to Christ, that is a moment that has passed, and now his favor is with me for a lifetime. That's good news. That, that's what we talk about in the gospel. That's why the gospel is good news. And then he says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And so my third question is, okay, what does it mean to tarry, and what or when is this morning that he's talking about? That word tarry actually means like an uninvited guest who works really hard and gets in your face. So, so weeping, anxiety, tarries. It came into your, into your room. It came into your mind. It came into your life for a night. I don't know if you've ever pulled an all-nighter. If, if you have, like you've done a cool, fun youth all-nighter, like the ones that you guys always try to like twist my arm and make me do one, um, which probably won't happen because I'm old and I don't like staying up all night and chasing people around a building. Um, so there's those types of all-nighters, but maybe you've been on the other side of an all-nighter where you've had to do homework all night. That's pretty terrible. Hopefully you're not there yet. Hopefully you're not playing all-nighters at, at your ages. That's unhealthy. You shouldn't do it in college either, but it, it may happen. Or maybe you've had the experience that the psalmist has had where you had something on your mind that caused you to have such anxiety, trouble, or even tears that you literally could not fall asleep. That, that's, a, that's a terrible existence. If you think about that, you just want that night to be over. You just want that to be done. You want to see the sun peek over the horizon. You want a stream of daylight to hit your window because you just want the night to end and you want to start a new day fresh. You want to try and put whatever it was behind you and have a ray of hope. And what he's talking about when the joy comes in the morning, he's talking about a future event where the sun shines and it continues to shine on you, where there's a new day that is dawned. And what he is looking ahead to, David, even back in the Old Testament, is looking to the day when he would be with God in eternity in heaven. That, that's what he's looking forward to. That's the joy that comes in the morning. That's the morning time.
that he wants to praise God for. So he's looking ahead to a future event. He's thinking about how God has saved him, how the anger is gone now, he is in God's favor, and he will dwell with God forever. That causes him to praise. All right, verses 6 and 7. As for me, I said in my prosperity, or in good times, I shall not, never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. Here, here's what he is now instructing us, okay? So, so here's how to praise, why you praise God, because God saved you and because you have an eternal home with him. That's step one, what he just talked about in the first section. Now in this section, he's saying something else. Be careful. Be careful of being comfortable. Because if you're comfortable, it could be a very dangerous place. He says in verse 7 that by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain strong. He recognizes that God strengthened him. And in English, we have a hard time translating it. We say, you hid your face and I was dismayed. But in, in the original language, what he's really saying is, if you were to take away your presence, God, if you were to leave me, if God, if you were to walk away from me, I would be depressed, I would be destroyed, I would be utterly hopeless, I'd be dismayed, so please do not do that. And what he recognizes is that good times are not times that you get to forget about God. You don't get to just check out and just say, man, God, like everything's going really well, and you don't praise God in those times. You don't just come running to God when things start to break. His, his encouragement is, don't just be comfortable, and if you are comfortable, that can be dangerous, so continue to praise God even when things are good. Sometimes that's even harder than praising it when things are bad. So continue to praise God in the good times, because if God were to remove his presence from you, he's acknowledging, man, I would be completely destroyed. So continue to praise God when things are good. Verses 8 through 10. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, my helper. Verse 11 and 12 is how he finishes. You have turned from me my mourning into dancing. Again, if you were listening to our songs earlier, that's part of a song. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. In those last two sections, verses 8 through 10 and 11 through 12, he gives us reasons why God saves us or God does these things to rescue us. In both of those sections, it's interesting. In, in verse 8 through 10, he says to the Lord, What profit, what would be gained if I were to die? If you were to allow me to fail and to be destroyed, then who would praise you? Would the dust do it? And he's asking a question. He's saying, like, that's my purpose. I'm here to praise you, so don't let me be destroyed. Verses 11 and 12 is similar. He says, you have turned my mourning into dancing. So you've taken something that was bad in my life, and you've made it into something really good. You know, you've taken my weeping and turned it into a celebration. So now things are not as good, and now you've made them better. You've taken sackcloth, which was used at times in funerals and other times when you were in deep mourning. You would sprinkle the sackcloth and ash over you to be a sign that you are in, in, in basically a feeling of despair or death. And he says, you have taken that away from me and made me clothed with gladness, with joy, Right? So you've, you've done good things, God. You've taken bad things and turned them into good in my life. But why did he do it? Verse 12, he says, so that my glory 
may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The whole purpose why God does that in your life and in my life and in the lives of those people around you is this. He rescues you so that you can praise him. It's about him receiving more glory and honor. It's not about you feeling good about life. But it is a byproduct that God, when he does the good things in your life, you'll probably feel better about your life. Because it's good, right? It's good to go from mourning to dancing. That's a good thing. But the ultimate reason he does it is so that you could praise him. That you may worship him. That you may tell other people about him. This is why you start with praise. Now, the interesting thing part, I want to transition and flip a little bit on its head because I want to connect this in the time we have left in the last couple minutes to seeing that this is about the temple being dedicated. That was when this would be read. This whole psalm would be read talking about what God has done in David's life and then you could talk about what God has done in your life and then you would worship in the temple, the place where God dwells. If you connect this to the New Testament, Jesus claims to be the actual temple. In the Old Testament, they, it was a building, you know, it was built. David uh, raised funds in the nation. Solomon eventually built the temple. The temple was then later destroyed. It was rebuilt again later on. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and the temple is actually in the midst of being reconstructed during this time. And there's an interesting couple of moments. I'm just going to read two instances where Jesus talks about the temple. But in Matthew 12, verse 6, he says, I tell you, he's talking to a group of Jews, and he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. Something greater than the temple that you're constructing to worship God is here with you right now. In John 2, verses 18 to 21, the, this story is the one right after Jesus has showed up in the temple and all the people are selling stuff and makes Jesus really upset and he starts flipping tables and getting really upset and mad and everybody goes and sees like, see, I can get angry because Jesus got angry and so we like find the one time they got angry and we think that we can get angry about stuff all the time. Problem is that Jesus did it perfectly and we, we don't do it so great, so just, just word for the wise. But Jesus flips over the temple tables. Now here's the problem is that a crowd gathers and sees him do this, and they say, nobody can change what is in the temple, whether it be the furniture, whether it can be the stuff on the wall, whether it can be the stuff that's set up. Nobody has the right to do that unless they are the Messiah. So that's why they ask questions. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Because you, Jesus, the Jews are saying, you have to have a reason for flipping these tables over. You're changing things in the temple. This is a sacred ground. You're not allowed to do that. Jesus says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? And then John writes as a side note so we as readers can understand, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Here, here's how this is really important. The temple throughout Scripture has always been the meeting place of God and man. You can go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 before sin enters the world. The Garden of Eden is the temple, is where God dwells with man in perfect harmony. They're walking through the cool of the day. God walks with Adam and Eve. But then sin enters the picture, right? And so God can't be with man anymore. So then they're separated. So God still wants to meet with them, which is a, an act of grace and a gift that God wants to still be with sinful people. So he gives them in the Old Testament a tabernacle, a tent that's portable, that they can carry with them as they travel through the, through the wilderness and through other different places, but they can take the presence of God and still meet with God. 
okay? Then eventually God puts it in, in, into Solomon's, into the plan where Solomon's going to build the temple, the great, grand, beautiful building in Jerusalem where God will dwell. The Ark of the Covenant will be placed there and all the people will travel to the temple and they will worship God there. That's the whole idea. But all these things are just pictures meant to point you to the true temple. And that's when Jesus comes along and says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here right now with you. And he's talking about himself because he is God in the flesh dwelling with man. So God and man can be together because Jesus came. Jesus is the true temple as God dwells with man, as he is the safe place for sinners, and he is the person, not the place for worship. I heard it said this way. The temple was a place that people would travel for miles. They would make their journey to Jerusalem. To come to the temple. They would move their body to a place. Jesus as the temple is moving our hearts to a person. Not your body to a location, but your heart to a person in worship. And that's the idea of him being the true temple. So let's connect this back to Psalm 30 really quickly. The very beginning of this, David said something interesting. I will extol just another word for praise you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Later on, I highlighted them up there for you. O Lord, you have brought my soul, brought up my soul from Sheol. Now, Owen, do you want to you help? Okay. So, that word brought me up. It's a really interesting word. It's used to describe um, drawing water in a well. You know, and I didn't want to dig a well in our building because, A, I don't know if there's water under our feet. B, I didn't have a jackhammer accessible. And also, C, and this was the third option in my brain, I didn't know if that would be frowned upon by Dennis and others if I were to dig, dig a hole in here to drill a well. So I just thought, let's not do that. But so imagine a bucket for a well, right? You want to draw up water from a well, okay? Now, before you do anything, Owen, hang tight. I want you guys to go with me for a second. Okay, you good up there? Okay, you're good. This little bucket here is us, is you. Doesn't seem like much, doesn't seem that special, doesn't seem all that beautiful. In fact, that bucket is empty right now. I want you to imagine that you are the bucket, and this is planet Earth, this is where we exist. Up there in the balcony where Owen is, is heaven, where you want to be. Because it's better up there. It's a better view. It's perfect. Down here is flawed and got problems. How does that bucket get up there on its own? Hopefully you're wise enough to realize it can't, right? Because it's a bucket. It lacks the legs. It lacks the ability. Now some of you, and I thought about this, because some of you guys are really smart. And you like to be smart Alex. So I like to think through my illustrations. That's why I'm very careful with illustrations with you guys. So I think through them very carefully. Some of you guys might go, you know how the bucket gets up there? One of us goes over here, picks it up, and gets it up there. Well, that's, some of you were thinking that. Aha, see, here's the thing. The problem is, all of us are buckets. 
So imagine, I didn't, I didn't ask for more buckets, but imagine, how does one person get to heaven? Well, maybe somebody else can get them up there. The problem is, is that if we are all buckets as well, how can a bucket that's empty over here get to that bucket that's over there and then get them up there? Put your hand down, Titus. I know what you're going to do. All right, so just go with me for a second, people. All right, so how can all these buckets get up there? They can't. They cannot reach there. It is a problem. They are unable to save themselves. Other people on this level are not able to save them either because, well, they're just as empty and lifeless as the bucket. Okay? Now, Owen, would you drop just the, I already unfolded it, so just drop the cord over. Yep. Just lower the rope. Yep. It's red for a reason. Keep going. When, when the psalmist says that, Lord, you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me, the idea of drawing water up from a well, that's good, Owen, you can stop there. Now come on down. The idea is that the Lord had to draw him out of a place of death. That is what Sheol is. You have brought my soul from Sheol, a place of death. In order for it to get out of death, this bucket, to move to life and be restored and even be filled the Lord had to drop something down and then had to, come on, Owen, do your work, had to attach this to the handle of the bucket. We're going to see his rope tying skills in a second, his knot going. A square knot will do, if you know what that is. If you don't, a bowling knot well, or just a shoelace knot. That'll work. Okay. Now head back up. It is a lot of work. Something had to be done, though, in order for this bucket to, be, to reach where it needs to go to be filled. In the same way, this is what Jesus does as the temple. He comes down and dwells among us. He physically gives us the rope. He gives us the lifeline. But he doesn't just drop it to the bucket. You See, that would be a key difference. If he just dropped the rope and said, okay, here you go, save yourself. How does the bucket tie it up here? It lacks the hands and the arms to do that. Again, if another bucket was right here, it also lacks the hands and arms to help it out. So somebody has to not only offer the lifeline, but also has to connect it to the lifeless bucket and therefore then raise it up. Then has to pull it up to where it can be fulfilled and taken away from this place to where it belongs and I love if we would have had more time and I would have trusted more, you know, liquids and things to be done. But the bucket can be filled now in the hands of the person who has rescued it. Listen, this, this is a, a crude picture, but it is a picture of what, what David saw in his salvation as an Old Testament believer. And what God is trying to tell us for the New Testament believer in Christ. You are rescued from here up to there, not because you deserved it, not because you had anything to offer, you're an empty bucket, and you couldn't get there by other people's works. It had to be Jesus himself dropping the lifeline and physically attaching you to him to raise you up. That's worthy of praise. Listen, anytime you preach on praise the Lord for what's going on in your life, there's always somebody in the room who says, but, but it's not easy right now, things are really difficult. And I want to acknowledge that if you're having a hard time in your life right now for whatever it is going on, just bad day today, or it's been a bad couple of weeks or months or years, whatever it is, the reality is I'm not dismissing your hurt. I'm not dismissing or minimizing that it's been hard. But I am telling you 
that you still can start with praise. Because if you are in Christ, that is worthy of praise. When God reached down to save you and rescue you, it is worthy of praise. Even if it's praise with tears, even if it's praise that comes from a heart that is still broken. The fact that if Jesus has saved you from your sin and filled you up with life, he is worthy to be praised. He is the true temple. He is God dwelling with us. If you've never placed your faith in him, then you are still the bucket, dead, lifeless, empty, and you need somebody to save you. And none of us can do it. We can, we can tell you about him, and he can drop the lifeline to pull you up. And that's the invitation that all of us have to give if you're in Christ by praising what God has done in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these, uh, these students for being here first, Lord, and just the opportunity to worship you and to gather, to sing, and to study your word, to read it, and to consider it. Father, I just thank you for the saving work that you have done in so many hearts and lives in this room. I thank you for the salvation that I've experienced as well, Lord, and just the ways that you have rescued me from my own sin, and you have filled me up. God, the joy that comes with that is sometimes inexplainable. It's hard to understand, but we, we praise you, Lord, for the work that you have done, the good work of rescuing sinful people like us who have nothing to offer and can't get there. We can't get there on our own. And yet you reach down and come meet us. God, you did that in, in your son's life. We thank you for Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection, which allows us to live in this newness of life and freedom that you offer. So God, we praise you and we worship you. God, would you give us hearts that start with praise? that start our day by worshiping and thanking you, if there's nothing else that we can think of, we remember that you rescued us from the pit, that you drew us up. May that be what causes our hearts to praise and worship you. We pray all these things because of your son Christ in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, thanks for being here tonight. We'll see you on Sunday for the Water War, and we're back in here next Wednesday as well. Have a good rest of your week.